this week we're in part two of a series called Safe. It's killing you. And here's what we said last week. We said you can either play it safe or live a life of significance, but you cannot do both. You were fundamentally created to live a life of significance, not to play it safe. And we live in a culture, in a society, addicted to safety. I encourage you, go back and listen to the sermon if you missed it. Uh, We talked about this missing ingredient, especially in the church today, because safety is undermining our faith because it is killing, it's killing us from being women and men of courage who stand up when others sit down, who speak up when others are silent, who love when others retreat. And so we talked about taking courage because God is with you everywhere you go. You're not created to play it safe, living a life of significance, living this life of significance. You have to step out in courage. And as you do that, you know what's going to happen? Your confidence is going to get shaken. And this week we're talking about how to be confident. Because the minute you step out in courage, the minute you begin to go, okay, I get it, Ingram. I'm not meant to play it safe. I'm going to live into this. I'm going to begin to lean into what God has for me. I'm going to begin to obey the prompting of the Spirit. And all of a sudden, everything rises inside. And you're like, oh, your confidence begins to shake. And so why don't you just turn to your neighbor and just say, be confident. <laughs> How'd that feel? That's the title of today's sermon, be Confidence. And so, how do you live with confidence in a confusing world? You know, there's a lot of things swirling around us, aren't there? And some, your world of confusion is you're wondering whether you'll ever get married, whether that guy or that gal is ever going to arrive or not. For others, you're wondering and worrying about whether your marriage will even make it. And you're hoping and holding your breath. And for others, it's, it's your kids. And the world of confusion is, I'm not sure how it's going to work and how they're going to turn out and what's going to happen to them. I think many of the world of confusion swirling around is, is, is will God really provide with the economy, with their jobs, with just the way housing is? How can I even make it in this area? Will God really provide for our needs. Others, you're wrestling and you got the biopsy report and it came back and it's cancer. And you're swirled in this world of confusion or it's a family member going through that. So how do you face the future with confidence? Like, like look into the future and the unknown and, and say, no, 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 I can move forward with confidence in the midst of such an uncertain and confusing world. And I think there's a deeper question behind that question. A, a question that we probably don't tend to ask in church, unfortunately, though it is the right question to ask in church. Where is God when it looks like God is nowhere to be found? You ever had those moments? Like those dark nights of the soul moments, maybe you're in it. And it's not just like, hey, where's God? It's, God, where are you? 
Or you're just yelling at them and going, where are you? What's going on? I don't get it. It seems like a raw deal. No, it doesn't seem like a raw deal. It is a raw deal. What's going on? The Bible speaks to that deeper question. Not just one moment, but, but consistently throughout, uh, throughout the Bible, threaded from Old Testament to New Testament, where is God when God's nowhere to be found? And, and yet there's one specific book in the Old Testament that addresses this like head on. It's the book of Esther. And it's this book written to a people that, that have been ripped from their homeland. They were conquered by the Babylonians. It's a hundred years later. They're still under rule, exiled from their homeland. It's no longer the Babylonians. It's the Persians. And they're going, God, what's up? You've forgotten us. We feel left. You said we're your people of promise, but it's not looking promising. What's going on? And this book is this incredible book crafted for the people of God to see what God is up to when it looks like he's up to nothing. And we're worried and we're concerned and the world around us is swirling and confused. I'm going to try something kind of ambitious this morning. We're going to do it together since you're here. We're going to teach the entire book of Esther in one sitting. Now, here's the reason why. The reason we want to do this. The book of Esther is not intended to be parsed out and broken apart. It's intended to be read in one sitting so that you get the entire story, the entire big picture narrative. And isn't it true that, that in the chapters of your life, we're still present in that, but we rarely step back to see the big start, overarching narrative or story of what's happening around us. And, and so to break it apart, we would miss kind of the arc of what God's doing in this book. And, and so the book of Esther takes place about 500 years before the time of Christ. It's during the Persian Empire. This is located in modern-day Iran. This is a historical writing. The Jewish people uh, are in exile, and it's about a hundred years after they've been ripped from their homeland. There's a group that did when Persia conquered Babylonia. There's a group that was allowed to go back to the Promised Land, but there's another segment of Jews that have stayed and are a part of just the uh, Jewish people in the capital city of Susa there. The major theme of the book of Esther is this, and we'll see it threaded throughout the entire book, that God is still working even when you cannot see it. In fact, the one sentence I want you to walk away with this morning is be confident. Like you can be confident because God is still working even when you cannot see it. And the reason the book of Esther is, is so poignantly written for those who are wrestling with where is God when it looks like God's nowhere to be found, because Esther is the only book in the Bible that we find that there is absolutely no mention of God. The name of God's never mentioned in this book. 
And it is the, 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 the style of the writer to, to point us to the activities of God and see the arch and how God is, the, his sovereignty is threaded through every situation, even when it looks like God is absent from it. And so we pick it up in chapter one, God at work, even with a prideful and foolish ruler. God at work, even with a prideful and foolish ruler, you could say a prideful or foolish boss. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Cush. Now, many of you probably know Xerxes uh, or are familiar with Xerxes. Xerxes reigned, I'm not being like tongue-in-cheek there, I think you actually do know this, but he reigned from 480 B.C. to 479 B.C., and what he is most famous for are two things, but the, but the first one is you know about because you, many of you watched the movie 300. Xerxes is famous for his defeat by Greece, this mighty powerful army descends upon and wants to conquer the Greek nation and the few Spartans, okay, sorry, you know, and they rise up and they defeat this this army of hundreds of thousands. Well, that's Xerxes. This is our guy right here. He's also famous for his, because after he got defeated, he went back and he just focused on building up his palace and making himself look good because he felt bad about being defeated. At the time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. And in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his nobles and officials. These are all the Ro- not Roman, these are all the commanders and, and leaders. This is the moments happening before he's going to go and invade Greece. This is his gathering of all his leaders. Uh, the military leaders of Persia and Media, uh, the princes and nobles of the province were present. Now listen to this. For a full 180 days, half a year. Wow. He displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and splendor and glory of his majesty. And so what he thought, before we go and invade Greece, you know what? I'm going to invite all the leaders to my house for 180 days. And we're going to party for 180 days. No wonder they lost in the battle. Makes sense. When these days were over, when this 180 days were over, the king gave a banquet. This is a different word for banquet, by the way. The first one's this feast and banquet. This one literally means in the Hebrew or in the Aramaic is drinking party. This is just, he just gave a seven-day drinking party. He's like, I'm going to invite my bros, and we're just going to drink. We're going to hang out, lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. So then the text goes on and tells about the opulence and the grandeur and the gold and how he just was displaying the wealth and how great Persia was. Goes on. On the seventh day, when the king's high in spirits from wine, he commanded seven eunuchs who served him bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown. Okay, I forgot. We got King Xerxes. Bring. Okay, I won't. I won't. I won't. I won't do that. Bring to me Vashti. 
right? Wearing her royal crown. Now, uh, rabbinic tradition on this says that, um, that Xerxes wasn't just asking Vashti to come to their party. He was asking Vashti to come wearing a crown and nothing else. Yeah. Gross. But when the attendants delivered the king's command, Queen Vashti refused to come. And then the king became furious and burned with anger. Yeah, absolutely. He's like, no, you're drunk as a skunk, hanging out with all your guys, and now you're asking me to expose myself and humiliate myself. I'm not doing it. And the king just flies into anger. And in his anger, he consults his, his wise men, his counselors, and he's going, okay, guys, what do we do? And they're looking at this, and they're thinking about it. You know what? If the queen can say no to the king, then um, every other woman can say no to their man, and we're going to have mass confusion and chaos, and our, well, our way of life's going to really get messed up. So I, I got an idea about this. And so one of his wise men says this, Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, which cannot enter uh, Media, which, uh, sorry, that Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Now, this is an important note because these wise men don't want, you know, Xerxes to sober up and realize, man, I was an idiot for making that decision and bring her back in on it. And then, you know what Vashti would do? She would get rid of those wise guys. They're saving their rear right in this. And also let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. Okay. Then when, listen to this, then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Because that's how it works, right? You, you get a decree and go, okay, yeah, no, I, now you have to respect me, right? You have a decree. See, God is even at work in the midst of a prideful and foolish ruler. And this is male chauvinism at its worst. And listen, I would just want to speak to the men for a second because we talk about spiritual leadership Men, you are never to enforce your leadership. That is not godly, or say you have to. We are to lead in the way of Jesus. How did Jesus lead? As a servant, through sacrificial love. Never. You have to, you ought to. And we see God at work. Even when a prideful and foolish ruler is on the throne. Chapter 2, God at work in the midst of painful humiliation. Later, when King Xerxes' fury have subsided, actually it's four years later, so after this moment he goes and they go to fight Greece, they lose, he comes back with his tail between his legs, and then he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed, let's... Let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel of Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their beauty treatment be given to them. In fact, they are to spend 12 months in this beauty treatment to be prepared to come before the king. Then let the young woman who pleases the king be queen 
instead of Vashti. And you'll notice this advice appealed to the king, and he followed it. You'll see that consistently through the text. This advice appealed to the king. He seems to like what everybody, anybody says around him. And here we see God at work in the midst of a painful humiliation. This is a sick and twisted beauty pageant. Hundreds of women ripped from their home. One author or historian, ancient historian Josephus said there's 400 women. Even from the way the text is written, you see that it wasn't that anyone, you know, fathers weren't saying, hey, take my daughter. These were officials going and seizing young virgins for the king. The life they planned was shattered. The dreams they had were gone. Taken from their families and their homelands. And, and what would happen is the king would just go through virgins night after night. Just to satiate his sexual desire. And, and the minute... They were with the king. All of them, except for one, was disposed of. They couldn't go back home. They were now just part of the royal harem. They existed as widows for the rest of their life. This is painful. This is tragic. This is twisted. This is evil. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shemel, the son of Kish. Now, for those of you who um, are, know your Old Testament, son of Kish is connected to another person in Kings, the book of Kings. Saul, the king, was son of Kish. Mordecai is of royal blood, and he was taken away. Well, he wasn't, but his family was taken away of royalty and nobility, and now he's put in a place of royalty, uh, authority in the kingdom. It says that Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom, whom he brought up because she had neither father nor mother. She's an orphan. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. This is Mordecai. And you think about Mordecai in this moment, in the capital of Susa, as as he's been caretaking and, and adopted this young girl as his own daughter, And it's cared for her, but he recognizes she is a beautiful girl. And at some point, the eyes of those searching for this awful beauty pageant are going to find her. And they certainly did. And they, they ripped her from her home. But because Mordecai was an official in the Persian um, government, you just see his tender care. And, and he would go and check on Esther in, in the women's quarters and just make sure she's okay through this entire process. And we find that when the turn came for Esther to go to the king, 
She took wisdom, both from Mordecai and from the attendant that was helping her, the king's eunuch, Haggai, who was in charge of the harem, and did exactly as he said. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. She's in a terrible, impossible situation, ripped from her home. And let's be clear, if Esther could have gotten out, she would have gotten out, and she should have gotten out. She had an impossible decision in front of her. I'll take that off. It's a little distracting, isn't it? Now, it says that the king was attracted to Esther more than any other women, and she won the favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set the royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Ashti. Now, there's this little note in the text that goes on about Mordecai. And it says that Mordecai, during Mordecai's time, he was sitting in the king's gate. This is the place where the people would come for judgment. It would be like our modern-day courthouse. Sitting in the king's gate, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. But Mordecai found out about the plot and told Queen Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai, though the king has no idea about their relationship, that they're related in any way. And when the report was investigated, found it true, the two officials were impaled on poles. That's the Persians' favorite way of execution. And all this was recorded in the book of Annals in the presence of the king. You see, God at work, even in the midst of painful humiliation, Esther put in a possible situation. And I know that for some here this morning, you're in chapter two of your life. You're in chapter two where you're in a place where what happened to you is not your fault. What you're going through was not your plan. Where where you're just reeling and and chapter two has overshadowed your life. And I I just want to say to you in this moment, as a dad, as a father, and God sees you sees you. Hold on. Because even in the midst of painful humiliation, God has not left you. He's with you. And chapter two is not the end of your story. God at work in the midst of painful humiliation and God at work despite evil Prejudice. Chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite. I always have a hard time with that. Now, this is fascinating um, about Haman, the Agagite. And those of you who like know your you know, ancient Israeli history, uh, is Mordecai is related to King Saul. Saul, during his years, and what lost him his throne, was a battle against the Agagites. Agagites, there you go. Put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. These are Canaanites. They've been feuding and anger and hatred for thousand years between these two people. 
And so Haman is elevated. Now, Haman, I got, got my hat, Haman. The book of Esther is read every single year uh, at the festival or the feast of Purim uh, and in every synagogue. And so they'll read the entire story as this is a... Even in chapter 3, it, it hints to this purr, and they would cast lots for what would happen. And, and so when Haman is read in the, in the synagogue, all the kids would go, would, anytime his name is said, they would boo or hiss. Just like that, right on cue. I love that. Couldn't have planned it any better, right? And so anytime they say Haman's name, the kids are going, boo, hiss. So I thought we could try that, and we'll see. It may not work so well, but Haman, good, very good. And so he's honored higher than all the others, nobles, all the royal officials at the king's gate, knelt down, paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Honor. Now it says, when Haman saw Mordecai, would not kneel down and pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet, having learned who Mordecai's people were, the Jewish people, we got history there, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai, and instead, Haman looked for a way to good, destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews. And he goes before the king, and he's like, Listen, king, I got a great idea. I got an idea. Here's my idea. There's a people in your kingdom, they're awful, they're intolerable, they're the worst people on the face of the planet. They don't follow your custom, they don't follow your ways. They're, they're just like insects. It's the worst ever, and we should eradicate them. And I'm going to like give incentive to this because you're thinking, okay, the Jewish people, they're actually pretty important, influential, have, you know, significant roles in the kingdom. But how about I put 10,000 talents of silver along with that? This is a bribe, by the way, from Haman to the king to get his way. 10,000 talents of silver is equal to two-thirds of the kingdom's money in a given year. This is a massive mind-boggling amount of money. Uh, one person said it is equal to 250,000 days wages in that day. It is massive amount of money. He says, I'll give that money so that we can eradicate these people. Talk about a vendetta. And the king responds, as kings respond, at least Xerxes responds, he thought it was a good idea. It appealed to him, said, why not? Now notice this, what happens as the concluding thoughts of this as we close in on this conversation. And the couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa, and they went to every part, the 127 provinces of Persia, to say this out. And then notice what it says. The king and Haman sat down to drink as if it was another day, bros chilling. But the city of Susa became bewildered. And in fact, that word is, I, I don't like the translation bewildered. It's another translation says, in an uproar. Confused. What is going on? And we see chapter 3 where God is at work even despite evil prejudice. And for some, this has been your experience. Because of your skin color, you did not get a certain job 
Because of your accent, you are treated a certain way in school. Because of your nationality and where you're born, you feel unwelcomed. God is still at work, friends. God is still working even when you cannot see it. Even when injustice and prejudice reign, God has not left you. And I love what the Apostle Paul says. This was radical words, by the way. We miss the gravity of this line. We kind of take it and go, well, of course. But this was so counterculture. They didn't have a category for this. He says, now, now, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. The dividing wall of race has been abolished. There's neither slave nor free. The socioeconomic barrier that keeps people apart, that somehow we begin to snub people that are less than us. He says, there's no more. There's neither male nor female. There's no gender gap. But all are one in Christ. Man, church, we just begin to live that out. We will be a beacon of light to a hurting and broken world. God at work, spite, evil, prejudice. Chapter 4, we see God at work in a strategic placement. God at work at a strategic placement. Well, Mordecai and the Jewish people are reeling from the news. Mordecai puts on sack uh, uh, cloth, which is basically burlap, real itchy, and ash, and you know, he's a nobleman. This is something he would never be caught in unless he's mourning something great. And the, all the Jewish people are weeping and wailing, and Esther has no idea about it. She, she's insulated by the, by the bubble of the palace, and she hears about Mordecai. He couldn't go into the, the gate because he's in sackcloth, and they're not allowed to go into the gate dressed like that. So he's outside the gate, and Esther's like, come on. And she even sent him a new pair of clothes saying, Mordecai, come on. Don't be so sad. Let's go. And Mordecai reports back, no, you don't get it. The, an edict has been decreed for the eradication, the genocide of our people. <laughs> She's going like, whoa, wow. And Mordecai says this, you should do something. May you're the queen after all. And Esther responds, and she's like, Mordecai, I may be the queen, but I, I haven't seen the king in over 30 days. And if I go to the king unannounced, I'll probably lose my life. It's against the law to approach the king without being invited by the king. And unless I show up and he holds out the golden scepter, then I'm dead. I can't do it. And this, listen to what Mordecai says. This is what a good father says in the midst of hard times to help his kids do the right thing. You know, one of the things I so want my kids to learn is to do the right thing regardless if things go right. That we're not fair weather people. That we say, no, no, we're going to be women and men of conviction. We're going to talk about that next week, a little promo for Daniel. We're going to be women and men of conviction who hold on to what's right regardless of whether it goes right. And this is what Mordecai says. He says, when Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do you not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape? Really? You're still Jewish. You might be queen, but you're Jewish. For if you remain silent at this time, now notice this, his confidence in God, his confidence in the providence of God, the sovereignty of God, his confidence that God will provide for his people even though he couldn't see how. 
For even if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Bold declaration of faith. But you and your father's household will perish. And who knows? Listen to this line. This is so good. Who knows? But that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. God's at work at a strategic placement, friends. Like for such a time as this. I wonder if you begin to look at your circumstances and look at your life and look at your workplace, look at your school, look at your neighborhood or your apartment complex and and think about it not as accidental but providential. If you began to look at it and go, what if I have been placed here for such a time as this? What if I was born at this time in this point in history for such a time as this? What if you were put in the Silicon Valley, the center of influence that's impacting our world for such a time as this? What would change when you go, oh my goodness, I have a strategic placement. It is not an accident. And for some, you just need that fatherly, you know, advice. And man, woman, you're here. Not accidental. You're no accident. You have a purpose. God's got a plan. Stop playing it safe. Get into the game. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law. I love this line. What a courageous line. And if I perish, I perish. Because I'm going to do what's right, regardless of whether it goes right for me. And God at work in a strategic placement, chapter 5, God at work in a bold move. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the palace. Now think about this moment. Don't rush past that. We read that one line and go, yeah, cool. She put on her royal robes, not sure if in a moment they're going to be stripped from her and she's going to be executed. She walks into the outer courts of the palace. And just imagine that moment as she's just kind of walking. Because that's what I do when I'm nervous. My pace, you know. I'm just walking. Okay. All right. I wonder how many times she's played through, thought through what she's going to say. I wonder if there's trembling. Notice this. The king was sitting on his royal throne in the hall, facing the entrance. When he saw the queen Esther standing in the court, he was pleased with her and held out to her the gold scepter that was in his hand, the favor of God before her in this bold move. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now the king knows Esther showed up for a reason and a purpose. He doesn't know what the reason is, but he is aware that his queen just risked her life for this moment. So something is up. He's trying to figure out what it is, and here's how he's trying to get to the bottom of it. What is it, Queen Esther? That's a good starting point. Good question, I guess. What is your request? You wouldn't have come here unless there was a purpose. And then he wants to give her confidence. He says, even up to half of the kingdom, it will be given to you. Now, Esther's so shrewd. I love this. She's thinking about, what does the king like to do? He likes to party. I haven't seen him in 30 days, and I need to reconnect 
and begin to build this relationship before I um, tell him what's going on. And so he invites the king and Haman to a banquet. He says, come to the banquet. And they go to the banquet, and Haman's like, this is amazing. The queen invited just me to a banquet. Haman, sorry. To the banquet. All right. Thank you. And the king asks again, what is it? And she says, you know what? Come back tomorrow for another banquet, and I'll tell you then what's on my mind, what, what, what I'm really needing from you. Well, Haman okay, leaves that elated. I mean, he's already a pompous guy as it is, but he leaves that moment just so puffed up and excited. He's like, all right, here I am. I am amazing. And as he's walking in his amazingness, he sees Mordecai. And he's enraged. And he goes home and he invites some of his neighbors over. He's bragging about his day. He's like, you can't believe this. Um, The queen had a private banquet and I was invited. Pretty awesome. And then he's complaining about this Mordecai. And his wife and some friends say, dude, just don't wait for the time for, you know, the destruction and annihilation and the genocide. Get rid of them tomorrow. It's like, that's a good idea. And so he erects a pole, 75-foot pole for Mordecai. And we see God at work now, chapter 6. In the darkest hour. It looks like Mordecai's fate has been sealed. And God is at work even when it looks like all hope is lost. That night, the king could not sleep. So he ordered the book of the Chronicles, the record of his reign, to be brought in and read to him. It was found recorded there that Mordecai had exposed... uh, Two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway, who had conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. So he's asking, what, what honor and recognition has Mordecai received for this? The king asked. Nothing has been done for him, his attendant said. The king then asked, who's in the court? It's early. What's going on? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the palace to speak to the king about impaling Mordecai on the pole. You see how you begin to see the arc of God's providence and sovereignty through this? Mordecai, or Haman's showing up going like, all right, I'm going to request that Mordecai, even though he's a high up official, be killed. And what I'm going to do is show up here. The king really likes me. This should be good. And then king sees him. He says, bring him in. Bring him in. And the king asked this. He said, what would... You do for someone the king delights to honor. Haman's going, well, that's got to be me. Who else would the king want to honor more than me? And so he tells the king, you know what? What would be great is if you put a royal robe on that, uh, that the king is actually worn. And then place this person, whoever that person is, me, on a stallion, a royal horse that the king has rode himself. And then have an have a official, a high-ranking official, walk through the town and say, this is what the king does for those whom he longs to honor. And the king says, that's a great idea, because that's all the king says. That's all he ever says is, that's a great idea. Your ideas are awesome. And he says, now go do that for Mordecai. And you see Haman leading Mordecai through the city of Susa, declaring this is what the king 
delights, this is a person, the king delights to honor. And we see God at work in the darkest hour. And we move down to chapter 7, God at work in his timings. Perfect. It may be dark. It may seem impossible. It may feel like God is nowhere to be seen, but, but he is never late. The problem is that his timing is often not our timing, isn't it? And he's generally never early either. Well, the queen holds a second banquet. So the king and Haman went to the queen Esther's banquet, and they were drinking wine on the second day. And the king again asked, what's your request? Even up to half of the kingdom, it'll be given to you. Then the queen answered, if I found favor with you, your majesty. Now think about the tension of this moment. Haman's there. Xerxes there. Esther's there. If I found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases, grant me my life. Huh? You're the queen. What do you mean? This is my petition, and spare my people. I think Haman's starting to figure out who Esther is. This is my request, for I and my people have been sold to destroyed, to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we have merely been sold as male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king, playing into his ego there. King Xerxes asked the question, who is he, where is he, the man who dared to do such a thing? And Esther, I can only imagine the drama of this moment and just pointing, you know, feeling like so much of her life in this story has been being powerless and swept away and just going, here's the moment, an adversary, an enemy, this vile Haman. Boo and hiss. That was a good place for a boo and a hiss. I'm sorry. I know we lost it and you were doing a great job just staying with me. See, God at work and his timing is perfect. Well, the king leaves the room in rage. Haman comes down and he's like pleading with Esther, realizing he's about to die. And when the king comes back in, he looks at what's happening with Haman leaning onto the couch to Esther. He says, will he even molest the queen while she's with me in the house? As soon as the word left the king's mouth, they covered Haman's face. It's a sign for those that are going to be executed in the Persian culture. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs attending the king, says, excuse me. Excuse me, got a, I, I got an idea. So here, listen up. A pole reaching the height of 50 cubits, 75 feet, stands by Haman's house. He had it set up for Mordecai. Remember the guy you honored who spoke up to help the king? The king said, impel him on it. See, so God at work and his timing is perfect. Please don't interpret God's delay as his denial. In chapter 8, 9, and 10, we see God at work to bring about the great reversal. Mordecai issues a new decree. The Jews triumph over their enemies. The celebration of Purim established to be remembered to this day being celebrated. Mordecai promoted to the second in the kingdom. Listen, friends. You can be confident that when you don't see God, that God is still at work in your life. He has not left you. See, when God seems absent, let's remember, he has not abandoned you. He will never abandon you. And you have a God, no matter which chapter of the life you're in, is all about bringing about the great reversal. Think about Genesis chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph 
after being sold into slavery by his brothers and then become second in command in Egypt. He's having this conversation with his brothers and he says, you intended this for harm, but God intended it for good, for the saving of many lives. Yeah, the evil and the oppression and the injustice that you intended for harm, God is all about the great reversal and he can turn that to good and the saving of many lives. Think about what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, 28. And this is a verse that gets ripped out of his context, and, and because so, it loses its weight. Chapter 8 is about the reality and the pain and the devastation of sin and suffering in our lives. And Paul says this. Now it's God. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Where is God when you don't see him? Friends, he's at work. God is at work at about bringing a great reversal. Don't get stuck in your chapter. The cross is the turning point of human history. The cross reveals the God who is about the great Reversal. I don't know where you walked in. Maybe you're in chapter one and you have a prideful and foolish boss or ruler or roommate. I don't know what's going on. Maybe, maybe you're in chapter two and, and, and you're in the midst of painful humiliation and that's overshadowed your life and, and you've been living out of chapter two or maybe chapter three with the evil prejudice. Let's look at this real quick because this is, this is amazing. Think about strategic placement and the God who strategically he placed himself with us, Emmanuel. Not far from us, but he is God with us. He said, I'm going to come and be with you. And his bold move, Jesus never played it safe, but set his sight on the cross for you and for me. The author of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Who was his joy? You are his joy. When he saw you and saw inviting you into his family, saw restoring that relationship, he said, I will move boldly and I will encounter and engage the darkest moments on the cross because you are my joy. You're my joy. Think about that. The God in the universe looks at you and says, I delight in you. And the perfect timing, as he was killed by his own creation and hung on that cross and he's othered, it is finished. In the dark hour of humanity enveloped the world. Day two is silence. And it looked as all hope is lost. And then day three came. Day three, the great reversal resurrection. And I just gotta tell you, if you are wrestling with Christianity investigate the resurrection because it is the resurrection of Jesus and that he is alive and the historical foundation surrounding that event is the reason I believe and have been changed by a risen Savior. The great reversal, Dallas Willard rewrote John 3.16 this way. He says, God's care for humanity 
was so great that he sent his unique son among us. That those who count on him might not lead a futile and failing existence, but have the undying life of God himself. I love what Christine Kane said. She said, all the disappointment in the world will never change the promises of God, the reality of Jesus, or his destiny for our lives. Everything we experience ultimately becomes a tool we can use to serve others if we'll allow him to. I don't know what chapter you're in. But chances are, here's what's happened, and this is what we do. We allow our circumstances to inform our understanding of the character of God. And this sermon says, no, 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 be confident and allow the character of God to inform your circumstances. And understand the overarching theme of God, that he is about bringing a great reversal for all of humanity and for you. So be confident. God's still working, even when you cannot see it. And I want to invite you, maybe you're in a space where it's a hard moment, and you're in that where's God moment. And I want to invite you to take communion and remember you have a resurrected Savior who loves you and is working all things out for your good. God, thanks for this time. Thanks for this people. God, I pray for those in this room that are wrestling, that are struggling, that that this has been a really hard season, who desperately need you, and in their honest moment, all they feel is like, where are you? God, would you meet them in this moment? Would you speak to them? Would you draw them to the, yourself? Would you remind them that you are with them? And that there's nothing in their life that is too big for your power. And there's nothing in their life that's too insignificant or small for your love. That they would come and experience you. In Jesus' name.